0: QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: Women Tech Charge is sponsored by Huawei. 20 years connecting the UK.
0: (laughs) Sorry, Lauren. Serious, professional. Welcome to season three of Women Tech Charge. I'm Amory marie your host, and I'm so excited to be back. We're recording this during the coronavirus lockdown, so all of our interviews are being done remotely, but that's opened up amazing opportunities for our biggest season ever. If we're not in the studio, we could go anywhere, the deepest reaches of space, or down to the bottom of the ocean, or how about both?
1: Little Kathy had no idea what she wanted to do, but she had a very clear sense of what she wished her life very much wished her life to be like the kind of inquisitive adventurous life that you know Jacques Cousteau was showing us on television
0: our first guest is an incredibly special one who's probably eligible to be a part of one of the most elite WhatsApp groups on earth she was the first American woman to walk in space
1: everyone has the stars above their head everyone, lies on their back out in a field somewhere sometime and looks up at the moon or the stars.
0: The first woman to go to the deepest point in the
1: ocean. One of the interesting things is the ocean is actually quieter now during this pandemic than it has been in quite a while. She
0: is the first person to do both.
1: It's not about what's next, what's better, what's topping it. It's what's next to to learn or next to create or, or next to change or next to contribute.
0: Her name is Kathy Sullivan, and she is a geologist, oceanographer, and astronaut. And I spoke to her at her home in Ohio. Welcome to Women Tech Charge, Kathy Sullivan.
1: Great to be with you, Emery.
0: And thank you for hopefully staying on ground for the the duration (laughs) of this recording. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) Reading for all of it, it's like she's either in space or she's underwater. I don't know, have you adjusted to kind of non-oxygenated scenarios? Is is this kind of strange (laughs) for you to kind of be on land?
1: No, I like all three domains, actually. It's quite good. (laughs) Good balance.
0: So you might not have been able to go to space recently, but you've definitely gone down in the ocean kind of whilst we've been on lockdown.
1: Yeah, we did manage to carry on with the oceanographic expedition uh, despite the pandemic. One of the interesting things is the ocean is actually quieter now during this pandemic than it has been in quite a while because of the reduction in shipping volume. Cruise liners, notably, are really inactive. And cargo volumes are down a bit. So we could get some recordings to pass to the deep sea oceanographers, take a look at what the sound environment of the deep sea is when there's not as many of us running around overhead.
0: Which ocean was it that you went to, the deepest part of?
1: Deepest known point in the ocean anywhere in the world is in the Pacific. It's in the Marianas Trench and at a specific place within the trench that's known as the Challenger Deep.
0: And how far down is it, just for for anyone listening, kind of try and conceptualise it? A
1: slight bit shy of 11 kilometres.
0: How long did it take you to get down there from the
1: surface? It was a four-hour elevator ride down and a four-hour elevator ride back up. How long did you spend down there? We were meant to spend a full four hours, but we had a problem with one of the batteries on the sub at about an hour and a half into that. And so we came up at that point.
0: That's all right. These things happen. I guess you're more used to that than, than anyone.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: If I'm going to ask you, and this might be like asking you to pick your favorite child. If I was going to ask you which experience that you enjoyed the most, shall we say the word enjoyed, (laughs) would you say it was kind of in orbit or would you say it was Challenger Deep? Because you spent a lot, you spent 22 days up there, right? Yeah,
1: significantly more time in space than I spent underwater. The fascination about both of them and and about the equipment that lets us go to these places, the best thing I can liken it to is is the magic school bus of of children's (laughs) books. Right outside your window is an environment that's absolutely lethal. You've got no business being there, but inside where you sit, you feel just like you feel where you're sitting now. That magical sort of dissonance of how can it feel so normal to be here? And it's clearly so deadly right outside the window. You know, I, I would have to say... I just would have to say space meant more to me because of the full span of the earth that you get to see from orbit. I mean, you circle the planet every 90 minutes, you see a sunrise or a sunset every 45 minutes. So that comprehensive sense of the planet that you get with multiple orbits, a thousand mile field of view out your office window, that was just so amazing to get to see that for myself.
0: I thought that might be your answer, especially after you said an hour and a half. I I wonder if you spent 22 <laughs> days underwater, whether you'd have, you'd have had the same answer.
1: I mean, I would love to get, to spend more time in the deep. There's so much fascinating stuff there, but, you know, I think we all kind of know this intuitively. You, when you say space to anybody, you know, everyone has the stars above their head. Everyone lies on their back out in a field somewhere sometime and looks up at the moon or the stars. And it's a, you know, it's a broadening, aspirational, sort of dreamy experience. And the ocean to most people is exotic, maybe a little maybe a little dangerous, maybe pretty at the edges, but you know, in literature and art it's got a stormier, darker reputation. And I think that affects all of us psychologically when we think about going into the ocean. So I, I think my reaction to the two experiences mirrors some of that patterning, the the grand, broad, exhilarating, expansive view or the little view in the 30-foot ball of light that you can see down in the deep. We, we all like to have brighter scenes, right?
0: <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit right to the beginning. It's always a nice place to start these stories from the beginning. Little Cathy, what was Little Cathy like, and what did Little Cathy want to be when she
1: was older? Little Cathy was immensely curious, uh, loved books from a very very early age because they sort of took me places that at age 5 and 6 you're not physically going was always very adventurous and uh, very curious about how things worked uh, want to try things just the imaginary life of dolls or or things like that which I had a share of but that was much less interesting to me than the active life outside trying things and playing the little Kathy had no idea what she wanted to do but she had a very clear sense in particular from about age 10 or 11 of what she wished her life very much wished her life to be like, and it was the kind of inquisitive, adventurous life that you know Jacques Cousteau was showing us on television, or the early astronauts were showing us in magazines. And that was my question. Some people get to have a life like that, and you know my father drove away from the house and went as far as I understood, went to an office all day long. I don't want that. How do you do this? But no clue at that age how you get there or what your label is
0: you just wanted adventure and you were incredibly curious so this is interesting because I've I've kind of we've done our research you were born in New Jersey but you graduated high school in in LA you eventually kind of from wanting this adventure went on to study at the University of California but you studied earth sciences but I've got a note here that says that you wanted to study languages so is, is is that kind of connection that languages come from that ability to kind of maybe go on adventures if you speak the language of other people or why was that something you were interested in?
1: No, that's exactly right. That was my first theory of how do I make this life happen? I found out at about age 10 or 11 that I have a natural knack uh, for languages. So there's an easy theory, learn a lot of languages and somehow that will connect to this, you know, someone has to buy me airplane tickets, right? How do I get to where someone's (laughs) buying the airplane tickets? But if you came into college thinking you were going arts and languages, they required you to take three science courses during your first year. Uh, And that's where I stumbled into literally geology and oceanography and saw dynamic young professors, super passionate about their subjects, taking us off campus out into the field every single weekend. And suddenly the light bulb went on and said, that's, this is the kind of life I was looking for. I just, who knew it's called geologists I didn't have I don't think I even knew such a thing existed as geologist or oceanographer as when I was a little girl. How do you go from plate tectonics and being
0: fascinated by that to astronaut?
1: So the key is to realize you're not going to become an astronaut in order to continue being an oceanographer. And the common transportable skill set is the ability to plan and equip and carry out expeditions in demanding conditions. So I had been going to sea since I was a senior at university, and I loved that. I most of all loved being at sea, doing the expeditions, and the jigsaw puzzle of putting them together. So when I realized what NASA was looking for was basically that kind of expedition, planning, operations management person, but to work on a space-based research ship instead of an ocean-based one, aha, now I get it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How different can it be? Right. Well, it's a lot faster and a lot larger view.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. so and that's a brilliant thing to kind of pick up on, actually, is that transferable skills, which for other people who maybe might not have thought of themselves as kind of space professionals or potential astronaut, recognizing that. You know, all these skills are transferable. So at the moment, it's mainly astronauts, are the ones that we get to see that work within space. But of course, you've got space lawyers, you've got all kinds of different things and different skills that are needed that would work here on Earth that you'd also need on expeditions and need on the space missions as well.
1: Women Tech Charge is sponsored by Huawei, 20 years connecting the UK.
0: So you are a record breaker for lots of reasons. You're the first American woman to walk in space. The name of this podcast is Women Tech Charge, and we speak to lots of different women that are using tech and STEM to to take charge of various different things. And you've mentioned being able to use your perspective and the experiences that you've had to help other people in charge make better decisions. So I want to ask you, as, as a pioneering woman, what do you feel was missing in the space race or in the space industry that you've now seen has changed? changed as a result of having more women in the room within the space industry and also maybe within oceanography?
1: I, my main answer to that is common to both arenas. When I was early days in oceanography, early days in the space program, the really good top people are committed to excellence, right? Outstanding science, do great work. And in an all-male setting, it's commonly the case that competition and stress and challenge and tension are seen as the ways you get excellence. You push people. That might be verbally, it's, I'll beat you to the corner, kind of, you know, let's see who can do this better. You know, I'll bet you can't. That kind of either rile your anger or rouse your yes, I can response. And as women get more involved in the field, you get a different balance between positive cultures and cooperative workings versus just the competitive ones. I've seen that repeat itself in a lot of settings as women move into sufficiently senior positions that they have strong influence on how how are we gonna come together to do this work? Culture is a set of decisions, often many unconscious ones, that define how are we gonna come together to do this work? And leaders play a significant role and I believe have a significant responsibility in making sure that the answer to that question is a constructive one that enables the talents of everyone to be put to best use, uh, lets everyone genuinely contribute to the best of their ability, but also strives always for the best possible outcome.
0: I love that. Yeah, the different ways that you can get to excellence, and the fact that if it has been that comp- combative or competitive thing already, then yeah, you can mistake. Excellence for being those things. Excellence means different things to different people, and human beings are allowed to be different. That's part of kind of what we're like as a, as a species. So why do we attach excellence to all those those other things? And
1: even when you've got a shared definition of what you know, what do we consider to be excellent work here? There are multiple ways to get there.
0: So I've got this here in my notes. On joining NASA with the first group of women in 1978, there were lots of discussions about what it meant if women were going to get their period in space. There were also lots of debates about what women would wear. And this is one of the anecdotes that I've always heard of, but I've never got to speak to someone that was in the room, I guess, when this (laughs) happened, right? And I know this was something from 1978. I'm not sure if you were there in the room when they were trying to calculate how many tampons or pads you would need. Were you part of that
1: story? I was there when Sally Ride went over to the place where all this equipment is put together. She's the first of us that's going to fly. And she's going to go do what's called a bench check. She's going to go through all of the dr- locker drawers that are going to have all her personal things in it and just check. it got everything that you asked for. Is it the way you thought it would be? And so forth. None of us wanted to make everything wrapped around just the way we liked things. So Sally grabs me and off we go. And she goes down through the drawer with her t shirts and flight suits and pencils and this and that and comes to the toiletries one and pops open this little toiletries kit and looks inside and looks over at me with one of those, you have got to be kidding me looks. <laughs> and I look in and sort of go, oh, and this is where the tampons are. And these are not just tampons tossed in this. Little bin, by the way, you have to understand one part of NASA's mania. So I want you to imagine a strip of heavy, thick, pink plastic. It was pink for everything. And you lay one tampon side by side. You put another sheet over the top and you heat seal each tampon into its own little bit of plastic. So Sally reaches in and starts picking up this pink snake. And it just seemed to go on and on and on and on. I I don't know how many were in there. We didn't pause to count. At some point, she sort of looks at the engineers across the table who, of course, have this sort of look on their face. And they said, "Ah, we really weren't sure how many to put in. (laughs) And, And she just looked at them and said... Not this many.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could have asked me. That's really funny. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what what a story. I know you've left the agency now, but kind of in 2020, what's the equivalent of those discussions that are happening?
1: Well, I suspect, I mean, there are now enough women at enough different levels of authority within NASA that if, if those discussions have to happen, they're well, they're more realistic discussions, and there are actually women in the room with authoritative voices.
0: So there's a great photo, actually, of you looking back at Earth through a set of binoculars in the 1980s. And I think it's something that always, always—I mean, astronaut—you've been to space, right? This is always going to be the fascination. It's always going to be the, like I said, the special WhatsApp group, right, of people that have kind of—you've walked in space, then you come
1: back here. <laughs> and it's like what do you do? By my third flight I realized I you know I'm not satisfied anymore just the fact that I had I get to have this great view and I can come back to earth and you know dine out on my vacation pictures forever and ever that would probably inspire some number of people and include them and that's great but I wanted to I want the perspective I've had to somehow matter more uh, be of more value here on earth so I go from graduate school my first job directly as astronaut. And now at early forties, I'm making a radical change in career. Well, no one else is hiring people who fly spaceships. So I had to (laughs) sit down again and say, well, wait a minute. Those are the labels we use at NASA to describe what I did. But what does that mean? I really did. The fact that I succeeded at these missions means I was able to do what in terms that, that translate into other parts of the world. And it was a really interesting intellectual exercise that I think Can be kind of hard to do, but what does this mean? You're actually good at the agency I ended up working for after NASA is called the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and its métier, its mo, is to take knowledge about the Earth and questions and issues confronting humankind and connect them, make the information really applicable to, relevant to, usable by the people facing those real decisions. You, a mayor, a councilman, a, a head of state, a business leader. So it's not just send them research papers or, you know, throw a bunch of ones and zeros at them. It's turn it into useful information. And that was just a real sweet spot. I think it, it's
0: definitely I think that's definitely something that resonates with me as well as a technologist I think for me I, I love the computer science and I love what you can build and I love the logic of the maths but I've always derived the joy from how do we then solve problems for people with this you know as much as it's great to go academic and talk about all these theories and kind of proofs and the rest of it what does this really mean to help people and, and improve things so that that makes sense thanks for thanks for clearing that up Kathy and I, I now understand yeah. how you can come back <laughs> and not feel Inconsequen- inconsequential feel like life doesn't matter I think that was always my sense it was like I've seen it I've seen what it's like don't worry folks <laughs> awesome <laughs> so um I want to kind of go back a little bit more to the astronaut thing the other thing I want to point out which is lovely from from hearing your story and kind of talking to you is I think the other thing is as an outsider or someone who's not an astronaut often you think astronaut is this kind of banner or this badge that you wear and you are forever an astronaut and I think looking at your journey, it's actually fantastic to see that it's it was another step on your career path. Like it was another transition that you transitioned into, I mean, albeit age 26 is your first graduate career. But then afterwards, you're like, yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to leave NASA, which again, is like a even to say it as a sentence is a really strange thing to say. But it's like, yeah, there is life after astronauting and it might be something interesting for someone listening to consider is whatever you're doing now, there's no reason why you can't be an astronaut or a space whatever, and then go and do something else. And that's a def- definitely, it kind of takes it, it makes it more accessible and
1: takes it off the pedestal a little bit. Yeah, it's, it is a label that you get to carry uh, forever. Uh, and it does, as, as you said earlier, it does have some weight. I mean, there is a not an, a presumption and not an unwarranted one, uh, that if you succeeded at that, you you're one of the extraordinarily skilled, uh continuous learning kind of people. So you probably get treated with an extra dose of confidence that well, I don't know, but she can fly <laughs> in space. So I bet she can do that. So you, you you do get yeah, you get that bounce. And well and then it's incumbent on you as an astronaut to say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. <laughs> let's let's be sensible here. Um, but yeah, you know, you it, it will boost you in that sense in popular imagination. And they're all you know, mine is not the only way to live a life after flying in space. Some people have stayed within NASA as an agency and gone into its management ranks. Some have gone into private industry, largely in the aerospace sector. Some uh, others, a couple others, have gone into academia or the museum world, and and some have gone into basically the motivational speaking world, where they they remain the astronaut that shares those lessons with various audiences. They're all they're all valid. Um, but you, I guess the thing I remind myself is uh the oddity of my career is I got big headlines but I got the biggest headline and greatest fanfare I ever would have. I know I got that when I was thirty three and I had just enough wisdom to realize that if you if you make your life about trying to get another big headline or an even bigger headline you're you're gonna be like the rat in the cage so. It's not about what's next, what's better, what's topping it. It's what's next to to learn or next to create or or next to change or next to contribute. You'll You'll never run out of interesting things to do if you're looking through that lens. What can I next learn? What can I next contribute? What can I next create? What can I next change? You'll never run out of worthy things to do.
0: So there's lots of pieces of advice and things that you've picked up. And I know there are elements of that that you've got in your
1: book that came out late last year, handprints on Hubble. I think to most people it was Hubble went up there. It was broken. It couldn't see straight. Oh, thank heavens. Astronauts fixed it. Now look at all these great images. But, you know, this is a telescope the size of a school bus or, you know, a a single story tall double decker London bus. You don't just pop down to the hardware store on the high street and find the tools you need. How did it come about that anyone even imagined repairing a telescope in orbit and then made it a reality? I was a part of that story for the five years leading up to Hubble being put into orbit. And all of that work, not just mine, but more importantly, this band of engineers, easily a dozen people, they were really the way this happened. And no one had ever told their story before. Their story reaches back, I was surprised to learn to the early and mid 1960s when there almost wasn't such a thing yet as a space program and yet here are these engineers imagining a big telescope and pretty nonchalantly saying well yeah and astronauts will astronauts will look after it in orbit and make sure it runs for a long time how do you how do you even Im- you guys have been in cars and motorcycles and farm equipment how do you even imagine this stuff and then make it real so that's the story that i wanted to tell and and, and i thought this story of how the ability to repair hubble and orbit came about was a really great case study for showing the cleverness, the inventiveness, the ingenuity uh, of a bunch of engineers and, and one token geologist to try to make this all happen. Oh,
0: awesome. That's super exciting. I love that. Handprints on Hubble. So it's definitely something for people to pick up and read and check out. So we are running out of time, unfortunately. I could talk to you all day. There's so many more stories, I'm sure, that you have, that you were there, that we we hear and I read about and I see on Twitter and it's like, that was Kathy. Kathy was in the room. We started back. We went back to the very beginning. We went to Little Kathy, when we started this conversation. And I, I think it's safe to say that little Kathy got what she wanted. You've had your adventures, you've gone to lots of different places, you've you've actually broken records doing it. I guess there's still an element of little Kathy in you. So what's the next adventure? What
1: next? Well, I mean, little Kathy back then had a pretty conventional, I think, dictionary sense of exploring, as, as go to someplace no one's ever been, or at least someplace you've never been. You know, to learn about it and witness it and see it. And that's a valid definition, but I've come over the years to realize I guess my definition of exploring, exploring is just curiosity and action. And it, it may, it often can involve going somewhere, physically doing something. But there are also so many other modes of exploration, you know, just creative ones or just intellectual ones, or or just much smaller scale, looking more intimately at the small scale life forms in a small patch of desert, for example. I love all of that stuff. So what's next for me will be to continue to explore what shapes and forms that will take. Uh, We shall see.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Cathy. Uh, Thank you for talking to me. And thank you for joining us on Women Tech Charge. Thanks for launching the season.
1: My pleasure.